Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, Hannah, we are so happy you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, let's start talking <laughs> about publishing. Hannah, tell us about you and what you do and what you like working with. I'm an editor at Simon & Schuster. I work for a practical nonfiction imprint called Tiller Press. I've been in the business going on six years now. And my day-to-day is working with big ideas and figuring out how to give readers insights into embodying those lessons. So taking big think projects and finding a practical application for them. So what's the way that we can act on this information, integrate it into our lives, or somehow embody the lessons from the author? Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I always kind of look for the radically practical in my list. So can, can we just like pick away at, cause I'm not totally sure I understand big think to practicality. Can you give me an example of that and what you're talking about there? Absolutely. My journey through publishing, when I started working on nonfiction, of course, I started reading like crazy and I was so excited by all of the amazing ideas that existed in the world. People who are asking incredible questions about our place in the universe, about how we can be healthier, about how we can interact with ourselves better, how we can interact with others better. And I'd find myself kind of up on this soapbox with these authors being like, yes, absolutely. We should, you know, give space for ourselves to be introverted. Let's find a way to embody that. We should combat shame. We should, you know, talk more honestly about gender politics, any number of things. And I'd close the book and be like, okay, but now what? What do I do with this information? What do I do with this new manifesto? How do I live this out in my life? And I found that a lot of those books are, you know, while so incredibly worthy, you know, dissatisfying to me in a sense, because I didn't know how to embody that knowledge. So when I set out to kind of grow my own list, I was lucky to land in nonfiction and especially in practical nonfiction. And so the things that I look for are more tactical approaches. Sometimes that's a 30-day plan. Sometimes it's a couple of ways to get started, some exercises. Other times it's just a really, really clear message that you can take and apply that lens in your own life right away. One way that I do think about my list is in terms of radically practical books. So I'm looking at books that help us bridge the gap between big ideas, new concepts, new ways of being in the world, and kind of our day-to-day actions and lives. So sometimes that looks more like, you know, a journaling application, or sometimes it has a really distinct 30-day plan, or it has, you know, a really clear call to action. Other times those books are a little bit more manifesto-like, but equally practical in terms of having a clear focus for their message so that you can apply it right away. And you also work on some adult fiction, correct? I do, yes. Not at Tiller, but in a past life. I, Well, I was at Harper Perennial. I worked on adult women's commercial fiction, so upmarket women's commercial fiction. That must have been a fun switch, though. It was. You go from stories about women to books helping women. Yeah, no, it's that's exactly right. I mean, it was 
I, yeah, I very much went from narratives about women where, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were representing their interior lives and experiences in a variety of ways in fiction to helping women in the real world live better. What are the questions that they're asking? What are the concerns that they have? What are ways that they're challenged and could use support? Um, A lot of big questions in both categories. And ultimately, you know, I landed more in the nonfiction side, but there's still so much value in you know, the empathy exercise that we all talk about when we talk about fiction. Well, I also think it's so interesting how you can have a nonfiction book and a fiction book accomplish the same thing. You know, you can have a nonfiction book that is saying, well, you can feel this, you can believe this can happen, or you can watch it happen uh, to fictional characters and end up having the same emotional effect. So I think it's really cool that you're taking both approaches. Thank you. No, I completely agree. It's It's a very interesting way that we can internalize information. We learn best through story. So there's a lot of value on both sides. And there's definitely a narrative in a lot of nonfiction, even if you wouldn't think about it right away. Like cookbooks have narratives, how-tos have narratives. Absolutely. Um, I think we all just want that human component there. So how did you get started in publishing and how did you know you wanted to work in publishing? I have one of those very cliched stories where, you know, I wanted to be a doctor my whole life. I told everyone who would listen that I wanted to be a pediatrician. And got all the way through high school, dead set on being a pediatrician. And then sophomore year of high school, I had this incredible English teacher, Mrs. Violet, who for the first time challenged all of us to, you know, do some peer editing. And all of us were like, what the heck is this? Why am I going to read somebody else's work? What, why would I do work for them? This is nonsense. And then I got it home and I was looking at my friend's essay and I just had the best time. Like next thing I knew, I was like, oh man, I want to keep doing this. So I volunteered to do pretty much all of my friends' essays forever after that. And my teacher noticed and she's like, you know, they like pay people to do this. Mm-hmm. Really? Aww. This is huge news to me that the, like an editor was like a real job. I didn't know anyone in publishing and no one, you know, really had talked to me about that. And I was like, oh, well, I guess that's what I want to do then. I'd better figure this out and make some plans because this is, I mean, helping even, you know, just friends and peers hone their ideas and find their voices was so incredibly satisfying. It's like, if they're going to pay me to do that, like, absolutely. I'd do that for fun. <laughs> so little old sophomore me spends a lot of time on Google and kind of figures out what the publishing landscape looked like. I owe a lot to Publishing Trendsetter. That was a great newsletter, you know, around the time I was starting out on on my journey. So I went to school, got a degree in English and Spanish. And then while I was between junior and senior year, I came out to New York and I was very lucky to have an internship at HarperCollins. Um, So I interned at Harper in the adult division for the summer. And then you know, was lucky that they invited me back the next year. So after I graduated, I came right back to New York, settled in at Harper as first an intern, then a temp, um, and then eventually an editorial assistant at Harper Wave. And that's where I grew up until very recently when I made the switch to Tiller. I know, I'm so interested in how, the first I'm interested in how this teacher, like, pushed you off your path, but how it's all the same, like being a pediatrician, is all about helping, you know, helping mm-hmm. families and helping children and how you've gone to helping just massive amounts of people. And maybe in some ways, even with a greater impact, if you think of how many books you've have out there in the world, super interesting how those threads of what we think we want can morph into something totally new, but have that same core value 
Really love that story. So you told us about how you like to bake. What else do you do when you're not working? Oh my goodness. I actually play dodgeball. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I play on a dodgeball league, Sandlot Sports. It's a local dodgeball league. They've been going for about a decade now. I just joined up a couple years ago, thanks to my fiance, who's a diehard dodgeballer. He (laughs) convinced me to go to one just to see if I liked it or not. And I was hooked immediately. So I've played ever since. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So you have aggression. (laughs) No, I have zero aggression. I have minimal hand-eye coordination. I am not aggressive. I am not a good dodgeball player. Let's... (laughs) Oh my God. <laughs> it's really fun. I mean, the people are great and we have a good time. And like, yeah, every once in a while you're like, okay, I see the catharsis of like throwing a ball at somebody. This makes sense to me now. So are you ever in an editorial meeting and you feel your hand like <laughs> around the paper? <laughs> no. it's, uh, it's crunching and you're just like, oh. I played rugby for a long time and every oh once gosh. in a while I feel the need to hit to like actually tackle somebody like at the grocery store, you know, I'd be like, oh, I could take you down. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. No, it's hard. Like once you have that like system internalized though, like they drill that into you and you're like, no, I will take you out. You are between me and what I need and you're going down. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah. Healthy aggression, a little competition, you know, all that good stuff. That's great. I know. You guys ever play? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool, but <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so what's something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry? The books that I love reading and the books that I love publishing might be a little bit different. I wanted, you know, to kind of exercise both sides of my brain sometimes. And I loved... No, um, in some ways, the practical nonfiction filled that kind of health wellness void for me. I mean, so many of the books that I work on are in the health wellness lifestyle space. And I kind of get to do a little bit of that pediatrician after all, kind of helping more than one person at a time working with a lot of physicians. And as much as I loved working on fiction and really helping writers realize these incredible worlds for their readers. Ultimately, I enjoyed the publishing exercise of nonfiction a little bit more. So I stuck with that one. Hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us the story of the first time you saw one of your books for sale? I made, this is embarrassing, I made a pilgrimage specially to my bookstore to see it because I knew it would be there. I had checked ahead of time. I was like, okay, I want to see it on the shelf. So I went out, it was a hardcover called Metaphors Be With You by Mm. Marty Grothy. And it was all about figurative language. It's an amazing anthology of metaphorical quotations. And I was so excited to finally see something that I had, you know, really not just edited, but acquired and seen all the way through the process on shelves. So I crept into, you know, the Barnes and Noble on 86th Street on the Upper East Side. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go find it. So I went on my hunt And then I took all of the copies and I turned them face out and I just kind of discreetly left some of them (laughs) around the door, hoping that maybe someone would find it (laughs) because it was, you know, alphabetically, it was kind of at the bottom of one of the shelves. I felt really bad about that later because I was like, oh, I created a lot of work for someone, but you never know. Maybe I sold an extra copy. Or maybe all of them were purchased and you didn't create any extra work at all. That, I like that way of thinking. I'm going to stick with that one. I know. It's true, though. Every time I go into a bookstore, I do still turn my books face out when I see them because that mm-hmm. always, you know, that's the thing that you fight for on shelves is like, do you, are you spine out or are you face out? I'm like, well, 
I'll do my authors the kindness of putting them face out when I see them. I won't bring them <laughs> around, but I'll put them face out. So what do you wish writers knew about things on our side of the desk? That's always such a hard question. I think what I really hope writers realize, and often this is something that you don't really get to see until you're well through the process, is just how many people touch your book and how many people are essential to making your book the best possible version of itself. As much as the primary relationship often is between author and editor and agent, there are a lot of other people involved who have absolutely essential jobs. And, you know, sometimes it's important to be able to balance like the needs of, of all of those team members too. Um, there's a lot of passion that goes into every single book from everyone at a publishing house, whether it's the production team or the assistant who's helping your publicist or the copy editor or, you know, the sales assistant who's putting together all of the packets for sales conference. Like there are so many people involved in taking your ideas to the rest of the world. That's kind of complicated sometimes, but there's, there's a lot of people who care about you at a publishing house when, when you do that. So you're never alone. (laughs) And that's part of why it takes so long too. Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. No, the more people, the more cooks in the kitchen, the longer it's going to take. And honestly, you know, having a big team means that sometimes there are, you know, things do take longer or there are weird random process things that don't make sense that we all just have to kind of go, okay, I'm going to throw my hands up with this one, but this is what sales needs. So this is what we're going to give sales. And ultimately they're going to do a better job selling your book if we just do it their way. And, and kind of making some of those allowances for everyone who really is passionate about trying to take your book from manuscript to store. So say you're a writer with a great idea who's starting from scratch, what are the best steps and how important is platform um, within those steps with oh, nonfiction? Yeah. The eternal platform question. So, <laughs> every time. <laughs> every time. Every time. And it, honestly, it is really important. Platform can take a lot of different shapes though. What I always look to first when I'm talking to readers who are, you know, fresh out the gate with an idea is to find your community. No book, no idea exists in a void. No human exists in a void. So who is thinking about the same things you're thinking about? Who's writing on the same topics? Who has a similar perspective? Who has a different perspective? Who can you connect with? And you have to do some of that really hard networking legwork, but think about it more in terms of making friends who want to talk about the same things you are going to spend a lot of time thinking about for the next you know, three, four or five years as you work on this book and bringing it from idea all the way to finished product. Sometimes platform looks like social media. Sometimes platform looks like connections. Sometimes platform is a business. Every project is going to be a little bit different and have slightly different needs. I, as an editor, I'm always evaluating what is the engagement who is coming to the table? Why are they coming to the table? How consistently are they coming to the table? What is it that you're offering that they need? And then I look at your book and I say like, okay, how well does that map to what your audience needs from you? And if those things are really aligned and if a lot of people seem to be kind of clamoring for what you have on offer, that's you know a pretty strong platform. Numbers can be a little bit different. Every publishing house has some different needs. Every editor has different levels they're looking for. But personally, I'm looking primarily at engagement and that with some caveats for size in general. So that makes me really happy. And to me, that's something that's a lot 
more hopeful a way of describing it than we often hear. We often hear the numbers. And I know on a previous podcast, Julia's like, you guys keep saying the numbers. What are the numbers mean? (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, well, and it's hard. I mean, like we sit around thinking about that a lot because, you know, certainly at Tiller, we're really data focused. So we're really diving in on like, what is an, you know, a sufficient platform? What are the platform conversion expectations? How does that work for people? And sometimes, you know, you're catching someone at a growth moment where they are building a platform in tandem with their book. Sometimes they have an existing platform. Sometimes the book prompts a platform. There are a lot of different versions of what this can look like. I think make sure, you know, when you're thinking about writing a book, find a community, know what you're writing into, make some friends, have a few people you can count on for support. Ideally, many thousands of people you can count on for support, but that a girl's got a dream, girl's got to ask. <laughs> but not everyone needs to have a multi-million dollar business to write a book. I just inherently don't believe that your platform means you have something more valuable to say. Um, it just means that potentially you've done a better job marketing that idea. And well, the reality is you could have a platform of 100,000 people, but no one interacts with you. Exactly. Or you could have 5,000 super fans that are going to go out there and like, March to get your books, you know, to the next level. And that's what's what I find so interesting with this conversation. And I really like how you said it might be that you're just part of a really cool community that can help elevate, or mm-hmm. you know, you know, there are or or whether it's your spoken word, you know, locally, or it's a podcast, or it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be like a Twitter following, which I think everyone's like frantically trying to get the Twitter following. (laughs) Honestly, that can be a dark place. (laughs) I have very mixed feelings about Twitter. I'll admit that personally, like my friends have been trying to get me on Twitter properly for years. I have one so that I can, you know, stalk my authors, but I really don't see sometimes the rate of return on people who like and share, you know, whatever it is that you kind of tweeted out for the day. Some people that works really well, but you know, there's not one platform that is the most essential um, to have. You know, I have some authors who are huge on Pinterest. I have other authors who have email lists. I have others who just know absolutely everybody that they can in their community and have a lot of really good friends who, when push comes to shove, they're going to show up for them. I always Mm. say like, who are your evangelists? Like who's going to stand out there for you and be like, you really need this book. It's that I see move the needle more than even 20,000 Instagram followers who've never read Mm. one of your captions. That makes sense. And I think that's really hopeful. Thanks for, for describing that for us. One thing people always ask about in addition to platform is comps. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done on comps and what you'll be presenting in a few weeks? Yes, absolutely. So I love comp titles. I think that's a fascinating discussion. And I know that, you know, both from my work with colleagues and in publishing and with writers, this is a really tough question. I mean, In the industry, we use comps as a metric of what we expect sales to look like for a given book. We use it to measure audience interest. We use it to guide discussion of a book, to guide its publicity and marketing campaigns. So having the right comps is an essential step to really positioning your book in the marketplace. You know, what ideas or 
What voices do you want to be aligned with? Where should you be sitting on a shelf or in readers' minds when they think about your book? And when you're first starting out, that is a super challenging landscape. I mean, people, I mean, we, we sit around and brainstorm comps with each other all the time. It's really hard. But there are a lot of tips and tricks that you learn over the years for how to think about comps, what makes a good comp, um, why potentially one comp you can use and another. People will say, oh, no, you can't use that. I get that question a lot. Um, there are a lot of like little shortcuts that you can use when you're starting out um, to find where you want to position your own book and your own voice in the world and find what kind of company you're keeping. Why do you think it's so scary? I think it's really overwhelming. I think it is, a you know, when you kind of show up in a bookstore or you start searching around on Amazon, the overwhelm is absolutely immense. I mean, you, without really understanding what makes a comp helpful and why we use them, you know, it can feel often like you're kind of picking titles out of a hat that you hope are similar, trying to both distinguish yourself and align yourself with books. And it, it can be a very complicated feeling landscape for many people. Well, don't you think though, like, so I think what we've heard at the Manuscript Academy is that writers are often clueless about the no goes. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No. And, you know, and, and we're like, oh, you oh, can't, oh, like, you can't comp it to that. That's a right, category. Right. Those are the, classes. right. Like the great, like Harry Potter yeah. or, exactly. you know, you no, know, and it's so hard. it's hard. You know, like, so, like, and, and readers of Harry Potter, like everyone who Harry right. Potter would love my book. And you're like, well, absolutely. You're not wrong, but, but, but then, also, and then it's like, you can't like, and I feel like that's, it's almost like, it, it, for me personally, and from what I hear from writers, I think it feels like a little landmine. Like, yeah. like you're putting your foot out there and you're like, you're trying to get near the landmine, but you're not, try, you're trying not to blow up, right? And you're yeah. like, well, maybe I can compare it to this and this. And then exactly. you're like, oh, that one's really big. Oh, no, oh that one's going to feature film, you know? like, mm-hmm. And so it's, I feel like it, and I feel like it's something that that shuts people down. So I'm so excited to hear when you talk about it. But I do feel like it's a thing that we make a really big deal about, you know, essential, but also really hard. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of fascinating. No, it's one of those like cornerstones that everyone has a different philosophy about. That absolutely, like you were saying, it feels like Minecraft. You're like, okay, well, but can I comp it to this one? But why can't I also then comp it to my other favorite book or the book that inspired me? or the book that I really think readers would love, or, you know, all the classics. I mean, it's it can be a, a daunting and challenging landscape. And also one that, like, if you know how to use it, you can really use it to your advantage. And it, when you find those right comps and you really lock that in, you can see some real magic start to happen mm-hmm. for your book. Um, feels like one of those make-or-break moments for a lot of writers. It's the best shorthand we have for voice, for tone, for plot for sales expectations, for the audience, for so many of the different components that go into what makes a book tick and what makes it exciting to readers, you know, being able to say like, oh, it's this and this if they had a love child. That is so selling um, for so, so many people. Um, it's really persuasive at Edboard. Yeah. So editors actually do use them when they go to Edboard or Acquisitions oh, Board. Yeah. Absolutely. And what does that look like? 
Um, so often when I'm pitching, like I'll pitch it very similarly to how it's pitched to me, but I might swap in comps that I would want to position it around. So it'd be like, okay, so I have this book in, it's about X, Y, Z. And, you know, I really sense that this will appeal to readers of X and Y, um, or, you know, it has a plot that kind of resembles X. I'm trying to think of a good example to give you so you can have something more concrete here. But very often that construction of it's a little bit X meets Y is one of the most selling parts of the pitch. Um, that's when everyone in the room goes from kind of hearing like a bunch of bullet points and a lot of information all at once to having a real sense of what this book might sound like, might feel like, where it might sit in the world. It really brings a lot of context. Um, so having the right ones can make a big difference. And I've seen people agonize about this for weeks. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Just, you know, doing all the research, looking in all the places. And I've watched people do that and thought that there had to be a better system. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you teach. So it's something that writers can save themselves that time of panicking and researching and wondering if they're going too big or too small or breaking rules or throwing people off or if the, the image they're creating is clear. I mean, it, it does feel like a minefield and I'm glad that you're going to help people get through it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, honestly, we're it's a minefield that we're all in together. I mean, I think the number one thing to remember is that editors and agents and writers all struggle with this. And it's something that we all learn together and hone our skills in over time. But it's definitely a skill set, not, you know, there's no one out there with a divining rod who just knows exactly what this book is. Everyone kind of has their tricks for figuring out the comp landscape. But wouldn't that be amazing? Oh my God, it would be. (laughs) I love the idea of a comps whisperer as like a job though. It'd be kind of like going to see the Oracle at Delphi and just like. (laughs) Yeah, but it does create things, right? I'd actually, wouldn't it be interesting if you worked backwards and I'm, I'm totally going like somewhere different now, but if you were like, if you started with the comps. Truly, we think about books like that sometimes and we're coming up with ideas. I've heard this a lot, especially in the romance space too, where like people will look around at the books and be like, you know what would be really great is if we took this book and we kind of mashed it up with that one because those Mm. are two really popular topics that actually if we just kind of, you know, two for one trend, what if we put them together and you create kind of a matchup edition? And sometimes it can be a really interesting way to come up with new ideas. I actually saw someone teach a class where she had two really large dice with different tropes on them, and then she'd roll them and everyone would have to write a short piece about the combination of those two things. And I think it's kind of the same idea as comps. It's like, it gives you an image. I'm always really impressed when someone can come up with solid B-list, A-minus list comps. You know, I don't want you to comp it to only category killers. I want you when you're pitching your book to really know who you're keeping company with. So if you can find me someone who is a solid author, who delivers time and again, who's sitting at that range where it's like, yeah, we can solidly publish this book, but maybe it's not the household name. Maybe it's the name that writers know or that publishers know or that readers would stumble across or booksellers know because they're you know, not New York Times bestseller popular, but they sell... 20, 30, 40,000 copies. I'm really happy with that. That sounds phenomenal to me. And it really proves to me that as a writer, you know your space. You know who your influences are. You know who you're keeping company with. You have really spent some time reading and thinking, or at least your agent really knows the space and can help you through that process. Agents can really be invaluable 
when you're crafting and honing those comps. You know, it's interesting. We had, uh, we did a Facebook live the other day. All of a sudden we start talking about this book reminds me of the Penderwicks and the author came in. She said, that's my comp, you know? Yeah, it was great. And, <laughs> and that's happening more and more lately. I think at the manuscript Academy where we're actually trying to like, like make that stretch, like, Oh, this reminds me of, and then people are like, yes or no. And then how much in a first page or first couple pages can you come close to another comp so that we are all making meaning together? And it's just, it's fascinating to me how our brain's comprehension systems are just built to, as soon as we start attacking something, we're comparing it to something else. Absolutely. So it is a real thing, you know, it is how we make meaning. Yeah. Yeah. No, comps activate our internal algorithms. I mean, anytime someone has come to you and said like, hey, I really need a recommendation. I just finished my book and I'm out of things to read. And you're like, okay, well, like, tell me what you read last, what you liked. Mm -hmm. And you kind of go, hmm, okay. So you mentioned, you know, these three books. And that kind of reminds me of this other book that you might like because it shares a little bit of X with the first book you mentioned. Um, We grow our memories kind of in those relational constructs. And when we can, you know, activate our own little, like, I would recommend algorithms. Books you may also like doesn't just live on Amazon. It lives inside of us too. Mm. So there's, it is really the way that we relate to each other and not just about books. I mean, it's about food. It's about, yeah. I mean, we share recipes that way. We share music that way, stories that way. We share, you know, even Instagram posts. It's like, oh, they love it when I send them these things. Like they might also like this post. A lot of the things that we do, we think about relationally and comps kind of help us situate our books in relation to other books. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I feel like it's a really good way of giving an example when we don't have the language to describe succinctly what Mm -hmm. we're talking about. And it's interesting to be that we don't have the language to describe a product that is literally language, but I think that's (laughs) often true. No, it is really true. That's exactly right. And Julie, it keeps making me smile when you say comprehension. Yes. Oh, really? That's really funny. (laughs) comprehension. <laughs> I love it. I, I love know. it. You know what? My, my literacy degree, it just, it never fails me. I'm sorry. You're using it to its maximum potential here. I love it. Absolutely. <laughs> so what's your number one tip for writers? So my super easy secret for all things comp research is to put on incognito mode. That way you don't get caught up in your own personal algorithms when you're searching around online. And you might discover a little bit more similarly to how a reader who's coming to your book fresh might discover something. Um, So that's like my number one tip is always, always, always use incognito mode when you're doing comp research. Platform, I feel like, is such a huge concern for writers, and it really feels like it's a barrier to entry. I get a lot of questions from aspiring writers, from friends, from people who, you know, are submitting proposals and ideas. And they're like, do I have a big enough platform to pull this off? I'm like, well, think, think about what pulling it off looks like for you. Um, and everyone's going to have a different expectation and need of that, but like platform is a means to an end. So what is it that you're kind of growing for yourself? If you're just growing it for the book, that's going to be a different look than if you're growing a full business or if you're growing, you know, a personality or you want to be 
a full-time blogger or you want to be an influencer. Think about the book as a part of your brand as a whole and then see how that fits into your platform and might inform the direction you want to grow it. What kinds of connections do you want to make? What kinds of growth can you expect and work toward achieving? Would you say that the comps you use impact the platform that you need? Yes, absolutely. If you are comping yourself to people with big platforms, then you know you would also need to have a similar platform to you know perform at the same level, essentially. Um, you know the comps that you choose are indicators of who you think your peers are. You know what's your fighting weight? What what do you both aspire to, but also realistically, where do you sit in the scale of things? I think what can be really daunting about comp titles and in thinking about them is also, you know, not knowing necessarily as a writer, like what the performance of a given book was, you know, how many copies it sold that can leave you feeling a little bit adrift because if you know that people are looking at this and they're, you know, I'm going to see you comped it to XYZ book, I'm going to go immediately on BookScan and be like, oh, like how did those perform? What, what am I looking at here? What's my justification as an editor? You know, when I go talk to my publisher, what am I pegging your book to that I can justify X amount as an advance? Really a lot when we use comps, in-house, you know, the first step is justifying buying a book. You know, what can we look to where we know there's an audience, we know that people are eager for a book from this voice or on this topic or in this genre, what sorts of companies is it keeping? Is there space for it? And then how well did those books perform? That's going to justify how much money I'm able to get when we go to auction. And I try to buy this book. So having comps that have performed well enough to justify my advance is essential from my perspective. That's a that's a really big part of of the battle in-house. For those without book scan, can you give us an idea of how to get a rough estimate from Amazon? Yes. So you're not gonna get numbers so much as you can get an impression of how well people are responding to a book. So I typically look at the Amazon ranking, you know, if you kind of scroll down. You'll be able to see the marketing categories that it's been grouped in, and you can see where it sits in those rankings. Um, You know, if you're in the top 100, okay, that's probably pretty solid. Um, Better to be in the top 50, certainly. The other thing you can do is look at reviews. How many reviews? What stars are they getting? Um, You know, the more reviews you have, the more engaged people are around a book. One other tip is to look at, you know, the praise that's posted on the Amazon page. Um, So looking at the blurbs, looking at the publicity hits, seeing how much reach it's gotten and how much promotion it seems to have had. um, Those can all be, you know, indicators, certainly not guarantees, but indicators of sales performance for a given book. So you said they should look for B plus, A minus authors. How many reviews is that? What kind of ranking is that? And what kind of um, blurbs would that be? (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I know that's I know. A tough no, 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 no. It's a good. It's a really good question, and it's also one that is really hard to answer because every book, every genre has its own metrics, and every editor is looking for something ever so slightly different in terms of what they know they need um, on their side. In terms of when authors are looking for folks, you know, if you can really tell when someone is that absolute A plus bestseller level, either because they are a bestseller, they have 
all of their own books comped in the you might also like section or in that section you're also really only getting bestsellers so folks like that you know if you're going to comp to those i would recommend pairing it with someone who's you know who's a little bit more realistic potentially so when you're looking at reviews you know do you have several hundred how enthusiastic are they do they seem to be organic readers you know, if it's not bestseller, but they seem to have a lot of support, they seem to have consistent publicity, they seem to have, you know, a variety of publicity as well. So, you know, potentially radio or, you know, not just industry publications, but consumer facing media, were they included in any of the best of roundups, things like that. Those can all be good indicators of someone who's selling at that really mid-list level. The bulk of any editor's list kind of ends up sitting with that mid-list um, performance. And that's that's a solid indication. Well, Hannah, thank you so much. I cannot wait for your class. I know you have so many more tips for, as you say, cracking the comp title code. And I just can't wait. Thank you so, so much for this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to talk to everyone more about comp titles. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with First Pages Podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.